Ashley, and you're listening to Let's Get Dark. It's just me today. Just me. How are you all doing? Thank you so much for listening and joining us. I think we've gotten some new listeners in the past few months, so hello, everyone. Welcome. Let's get going. So we've discussed the disproportionate rate that Indigenous women, girls, men, and boys go missing and are murdered in the past. But there are certain facts that I believe bear repeating. Indigenous peoples are murdered and go missing at a higher rate than other groups for various layered reasons, but the root causes are colonialism, racism, and sexual objectification. Let me introduce you, friends, to the patriarchy. According to the Minnesota Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force, when it comes to colonization and historical trauma, the practice of European colonizers sexually victimizing indigenous women and girls as part of the process of quote-unquote patriotic conquest is a major part of American history. Forcibly removing indigenous children from their families and placing them in boarding schools and the child welfare system, along with the abusive tactics used to ensure the children did not speak their indigenous languages or practice their cultural traditions, damaged indigenous family structure and contributed to patterns of normalized violence for indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Due to the impacts of colonization, such as more frequent involvement in systems such as child protection and criminal justice, indigenous people are at a higher risk of violence and exploitation. In regard to racism, deep-rooted racism and stereotypes of indigenous women are primary causes of the unequal response in Minnesota when an indigenous woman, girl, or two-spirit person goes missing or experiences violence compared to the response that is mobilized when a white woman or girl is in the same situation. Obviously, this was from the Minnesota Task Force, so that's why it references Minnesota, but I believe we could take that across the board to any state in North America. Law enforcement response is not as swift or as thorough. The court system may not prosecute or fairly sentence perpetrators for crimes committed against indigenous women. Other systems, such as education and health care, are not culturally responsive. These system failures can be attributed to both racism and bias that is built into these systems, as well as among individuals within the system. Lastly, the sexual objectification of indigenous women and girls with roots in colonial times, a common narrative that is reinforced by the contemporary media is that indigenous women and girls are sexually available to fulfill the desires of men. This is a sub-theme of the overarching rape culture in the United States and results in demand for sex with indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people that can be paid for or taken by force, often without consequence. These root causes put all indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people at higher risk of experiencing violence, being exploited, going missing, and being murdered. It seems obvious, then, that these insidious factors had a major part to play in the brutal murders of the two women that I am discussing today, Rosinda Sophia Strong and Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. Rosinda Sophia Strong was a 31-year-old mother of four and citizen of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and descendant of the Yakima Nation. Rosinda lived with her sister Sissy Reyes and was known by friends and family to be a joyous person with a unique, infectious laugh and someone who was always very outgoing. Her sister said, Rosinda was caring, loving, she was selfless, she made sure everyone was okay around her before she thought about herself, she was a great mom to four beautiful kids. 
On October 2nd, 2018, she was picked up by an acquaintance in an older model Nissan from the house she shared with Sissy, and the two drove to the Legends Casino in Toppenish, Washington, which was just a short drive away. Rosinda would last be seen leaving that casino with a man and never returned home and was never seen again alive. When her brother, Christopher Strong, reached out to the tribal police to report her missing, her case was not surprisingly not taken very seriously at first because she had past problems with drugs and they believed that she would come home soon. Tragically, she would not. And I'm sure they missed very crucial moments in, in attempting to locate her when they did not take that missing persons report seriously. Her sister, Sissy, and cousin Roxana White organized a balloon release in honor of Rosinda's 32nd birthday on April 16th, 2019. Sissy asked the crowd that attended to release any information about the disappearance of her sister. Throughout the nearly 300 days that Rosinda was missing, both Sissy and her brother Christopher continued to stress that their hope was that she would come home, or at least that they would be able to bring her home for a burial near their relatives. Sissy shared Rosinda's story in local, national, and international media, and pled for information wherever she could. The family has really taken a prominent role in advocating for the justice for countless numbers of missing and murdered Native women, girls, men, and boys on and beyond the Yakima Reservation. They have really made it their mission to bring as much light to this as they can. Nearly nine months after her disappearance, on July 4th, 2019, two homeless men found Rosinda's remains in an unplugged freezer located off of Highway 97 on the Yakima Reservation. On July 12, 2019, dental records confirmed the remains were those of Rosinda Strong. Since her remains were found within the Yakima Nation, the Yakima Nation police joined the FBI in their investigation into her murder. Obviously, it is classified a homicide. And because it is an ongoing homicide investigation, there are little answers to the public, and the Strong family says that they have gotten just as few from local law enforcement and state law enforcement. Because of the open investigation, her body is still with the coroner and hasn't been given a traditional burial, so the grieving and healing process really hasn't happened yet for the family, as terrible as that is. It's now almost, it's now three years later, and they still haven't been able to bury their family member. Sissy believes that the murderers are the fellow tribespeople that Rosinda was last seen with, and she said that she sees them walking the reservation free and refusing to talk. She gave the statement, you know who you are. You're still walking the streets and my sister goes missing and the last ones she was around were her friends. You were last to see her alive. You were last to hear her cries. You were the last to see her pain. Anyone with information into the disappearance and murder of Rosenda Strong is asked to call the Yakima Nation Police Department at 509-865-2933 or the FBI at 509-990-0857 regarding case number 18-010803. In our second story, 22-year-old Savannah LaFontaine Greywind went missing on August 19th, 2017, when she was eight months pregnant. She and her longtime boyfriend, Ashton Matheny, were excited and ready to begin their new lives together as parents to their baby girl. Savannah was a part of the Spirit Lake Sioux Tribe in North Dakota, and her mother's family had ties to the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. 
She was living in a basement unit of an apartment building at 2825 9th Street North in Fargo, North Dakota, with her parents, brother, and sister at the time of her murder. She had been working as a certified nursing assistant, and she and Ashton had just signed a lease to a new apartment and were going to be moving out of that apartment with her parents at the end of the month, which is just about one of the worst things I've ever heard. They were so close to getting out of there. She had told her family that she was going to a neighbor's apartment to help them with a sewing project, and she was never seen or heard from again. According to the family, the police initially did not take the situation seriously, and that isn't contradicted by their actions, considering that no one really knows what they did to try and find her between the day she disappeared on the 19th and when they raided the apartment and found her baby five days later. And the apartment they raided was the neighbors upstairs whom she went to help with the sewing project, supposedly. As late as Tuesday, August 22nd, they were publicly declaring that there was nothing to suggest criminal activity, if you can believe it. Then five days later, a newborn infant girl was found in those same neighbors' apartment, and police suspected it was Savannah's daughter. The question that puzzled investigators and searchers was, where was Savannah? Then, three days after that, on the afternoon of Sunday, August 27th, two kayakers discovered her body in a river a few miles across the border into Moorhead, Minnesota, as it hung from a log wrapped heavily in plastic and duct taped. It was absolutely brutal. Because her body was found on the Minnesota side of the Red River, her body was sent to the Ramsey County Medical Examiner's Office in St. Paul for autopsy. Their preliminary results would list the cause of death as homicidal violence, but no information on the time of death, specific cause, condition of the body, or details on the delivery of the baby were provided. The police remained silent on the details of Savannah's day after entering that terrifying apartment, and they declined to confirm any speculation posed regarding fetal abduction, saying, We still have a lot of investigating to do to put together the puzzle pieces in this case. But they did offer condolences to the Greywind family, saying, As they suffer through this horrible loss, Savannah was a victim of a cruel and vicious act of depravity, which I would fucking say so. The medical examiner was unable to determine the exact cause of death, being unsure if she died from blood loss or strangulation, calling the case unusual with two competitive causes of death. Eventually, two people were arrested in connection to her death and formally charged on Monday, August 28th, with conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit kidnapping, and providing false information to police. It should come as no shock that it was 38 going on 60-year-old Brooke Lynn Cruz and 32-year-old likely pedophile William Henry Hohen who lived upstairs and were charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping and false information, and the pair were believed to be the last people to see Savannah alive. Following their arrests, it was revealed that Cruz had at least seven children of her own by at least five different men, but had little to no contact with any of those children. She had been sued by two of those men for child support. Hohen had two children, one which he physically abused as a baby, fracturing its skull. So it's hard to imagine why two such absolute low-life parents felt like they needed another child so bad that they had to murder someone for it. It's like you have literally nine children between you. You've done a terrible job so far. I'm thinking let's leave the baby with its mother. 
In interviews with the police, some of Hohen's co-workers mentioned to them that he had said he had a baby at home, which was enough probable cause for a search warrant. And we'll come to find out they searched their apartment multiple times before ever finding anything somehow. As they began to develop a solid timeline, investigators determined that Savannah was last seen around 1.30 p.m. on August 19th, going into Cruz and Hone's apartment, which was upstairs from hers on the third floor, apartment number five. The Duluth New Tribune reported that according to Savannah's mother, Norberta, the woman living in the apartment had offered her $20 to model for her while she was sewing a dress. When Savannah went to their apartment that day, she texted her mother just before leaving. She left her wallet behind, and she also left a pizza that was on the way. She was supposed to give her brother a ride to work just before 3 p.m., and so around 2.30, her mother Norberta sent him upstairs to apartment 5 to go get her, but when he knocked, no one answered the door. Then Savannah's father Joe went up to get her, and Cruz answered the door that time, but told him that they weren't finished working on the dress. Which, why would she not be able to come to the door herself, you know? Because Norberta thought that her daughter was unavailable, she took her son to work instead, and when she got back home, she assumed that Savannah was back in her room, and so Norberta went about doing some chores around the house, and then eventually, about an hour or so later, realized that Savannah wasn't there. She panicked and ran upstairs and knocked on their door. Cruz opened the door, but told her that Savannah had left shortly after her father had come up to get her, which we all know was bullshit. Norberta immediately knew something was wrong. Savannah's car was still in the parking lot, and it was incredibly out of character for her to leave without telling anyone, not to mention that she was very pregnant, and it made just doing just about anything uncomfortable. She said, she's eight months pregnant, her feet were swollen, so she wouldn't have just taken up walking like that. There was a pizza here, she hadn't eaten it, she wouldn't just leave the lady's apartment and go somewhere, she told the Duluth Star Tribune. She called her cell phone, but it just rang and rang, and she texted with no response. Then she called Ashton, but he said he hadn't heard from Savannah since her text at 1.24 earlier that afternoon. The family reported her missing that day. Nearly 40 law enforcement officers and canines were sent to search for her. Investigators and volunteers scoured the neighborhood in nearby Red River for days, as well as searching Cruz and Hone's apartment three separate times. However, because the searches were conducted with only their permission and not with search warrants, the police were not allowed to look inside drawers or behind doors, and they found nothing until they searched a fourth time on Thursday when they found a newborn alive and healthy. Which, where in Philip's name did they keep this baby in the previous three searches is what I would like to know. They later said that Hohen had the baby under a blanket on the bed during the previous searches, but I just don't know. I mean, I, I suppose that if they were that just cursory, not in-depth, it's possible there was a baby in that apartment the whole time, but it's truly mind-boggling that the police could have been in there three separate times, not found anything. Cruz would later divulge that Savannah's body had been in the bathroom closet during the first two searches and then had been placed wrapped in towels and garbage bags inside of a hollowed out dresser where it had been during the third search. So you're fucking telling me that these people had a baby that was alive and a dead woman inside of their apartment during three separate police searches, but because they were not with search warrants, nothing was found. I would say... Let's get those search warrants and then search the apartment and fucking find the bodies that are in there. 
I find this whole story to be uh, truly unbelievable. So the couple who lived just below Cruz and Hone said that on the Saturday afternoon that she disappeared, they had heard loud banging noises coming from the bathroom of their apartment that lasted around 20 minutes before the shower was turned on. But they said that they were so used to hearing the couple fighting that they thought nothing of it. Uh, that's got to be a tough situation to be in because at the same time, it's like, but what is loud banging coming from the bathroom have anything to do with fighting? And if it did, you might need to call the cops, which you know I'm not going to be one to say call the cops very often. But in this case, yes. Chief Todd told the media that they were able to develop a criminal nexus that justified a search warrant for the fourth search and said that Cruz and Hone admitted during that search that the baby was Savannah's daughter, but they ended their cooperation with investigators there. Both the gutter trash and dumpster slime invoked their right to counsel and refused to answer any further questions. Todd said it was possible that the baby was not in the apartment during the first three searches, as you would probably hope, considering how in the fuck did you not hear or see it during those searches, and, and it, if that was the case, then your search procedures probably need a little tightening up. Or maybe your police need to, you know, actually pay attention to context clues. The couple was arraigned the afternoon of Monday, August 28th, like I said earlier. Cruz pled guilty in Savannah's death. While awaiting her sentence, she befriended a fellow incarcerated woman named Jennifer Robinson at the Dakota Women's Correctional and Rehabilitation Center in New England, North Dakota. Robinson was called to the stand by the defense for Hohen on September 27th, specifically to challenge the credibility of his former girlfriend and alleged co-conspirator Brooke Cruz. Robinson said that initially, Cruz had told her that she'd saved the baby's life. Mm -hmm. Then she said that she'd strangled Savannah and dragged her into the bathroom, where she removed the baby from her body in under three minutes to ensure that it did not suffer any complications, which is probably more likely and absolutely horrific. Cruz had testified days earlier that Saturday, August 19th, she went to Savannah's apartment and asked her to come upstairs to help with a sewing project, which was a lie intended to get the young woman to come into her home. She then said that she started an argument with Savannah as a way to bolster her own courage, and during the altercation, Savannah hit her head on the bathroom sink and passed out, which I feel is probably more like Cruz hit Savannah's head on the bathroom sink and knocked her out. It was then that she successfully somehow performed a C-section as Savannah went in and out of consciousness. She said that Hone came back from work, looked in the bathroom, and uttered an expletive at the scene before him. He asked her if Savannah was still alive, and she told him she wasn't sure, but asked him to please help her. She said that he then left and returned moments later, having taken off all his clothes but his underwear and was holding a noose. Which I'm not even sure why was it necessary for him to take off all his clothes, if that's even a legit part of the story. He put it around Savannah's neck and pulled it tight, telling Cruz that if she wasn't dead before, she was now. He then took charge, directing Cruz to help him clean the bathroom and hide Savannah's body in a bathroom closet, later moving it to a hollowed-out dresser that they had snuck into the apartment the morning of August 21st. When attorneys for the defense brought up Robinson's own criminal record and questioned her credibility and reasons for testifying, she grew enraged, saying that when Cruz told her what she'd done, she, quote, shivered in her skin and wanted justice for the little girl and her dead mother. She ended by telling the defense, Brooke Cruz does not scare me, sweetheart. She's a devil in disguise, a master manipulator. And considering the way that 
those that are incarcerated feel about child abusers and the like it's very possible that she was telling the truth about what Cruz told her and she did just want Cruz to get the book thrown at her because she's a piece of shit then hone took the stand to detail what he experienced that day he came home from work to find savannah in the bathroom at he and cruz's apartment he said he'd come home to an eerily quiet apartment and when he called out to cruz she responded that she needed his help in a shaky panicked voice he heard a baby in the bathroom which he said initially elated him thinking that cruz had a successful home birth which yeah i'm sure that's what exactly what it was he said he looked into the bathroom and saw a woman lying on the floor in a pool of watery blood, skin pale, lips blue, and Crew said, this is Savannah, and I went and got her. Well, you need to go get yourself some help. She couldn't explain how the situation happened, saying she didn't know what had come over her. It was then that he testified that from early January 2017 until that afternoon in August, he had been under the impression that Cruz was pregnant. He said that she used old sonograms and pregnancy tests that she'd kept from one of her other children. Did those last for years? I'm not really sure. And played him a baby's heartbeat that she'd found online and had convinced herself she was pregnant. But he also couldn't explain why she'd kept up the ruse for so long. And it really made it difficult to understand if he ever really believed that she was pregnant or not. He said after the discovery of Savannah in the bathroom, he asked Cruz if she was even really pregnant, to which she responded, I think so. Mm hmm. That said, this was in fairly stark contrast to the statements that he gave police in two recorded interviews following Savannah's disappearance. In one, around three days after she'd gone missing, he said that he'd come home from work to find Cruz in a blood-stained bathroom with a new baby, after which she told him this was their new family and he shouldn't ask too many questions. Right. Hone admitted he had lied to the police to protect Cruz, but the prosecution said it was more like he was protecting himself. Not surprised, because they're both dirty, dirty, dirty in the situation and otherwise. In her testimony earlier in the week, Cruz had also contradicted earlier statements that she'd made to police where she said that Savannah had been up in, the, in her apartment but was alive and well when she left. She also said that Hohen had fantasies of drugging and raping girls, but that he held back on those fantasies because then he'd have to kill the girl so there wouldn't be any witnesses. Sounds like you got yourself a real winner there, babe. She said that he had a sexual preference for choking her with ropes, which is one thing entirely different than murdering and ripping the baby out of the womb of the woman that you just murdered. She testified that in a fight on August 6, 2017, he told her that he knew she wasn't pregnant, but since she'd already told people that she was, she needed to, quote, produce a baby, which made her think that she better have a baby and it didn't matter how she got it. You know, sometimes pregnancies are not successful. I don't think it means you have to murder. At one point in August, she said he came home from work and said to her, that Grey Wind girl is really pregnant. And it was implied that he wanted her to get her baby, though it was never directly said. Okay. She said that afternoon, after getting Savannah up to her apartment, she accused her of throwing her cat and stealing her mail, after which... A physical altercation followed and ended when she pushed Savannah, who then hit her head on the bathroom sink, and then she fell unconscious onto the floor. 
She said she immediately grabbed a knife from the door and began cutting into her stomach. She reached in and took the baby out, adding that Savannah was in and out of consciousness the entire time. In closing arguments, the defense focused on the timeline of events on the day of Savannah's death, stating that she was believed to have entered apartment number five at about 1.24 p.m. and that she was likely attacked shortly after, the baby having then been removed from her body around 2 p.m. or shortly after that. They said that evidence indicated that Hohen returned home sometime between 2.30 and 2.40, and it was more likely than not that Savannah was already dead by that time. In their closing arguments, the prosecution said that it was unlikely that one person could have subdued Savannah and cut her baby from her body and pointed out that both Cruz and Hohen were obsessed with the idea of having a baby and raising it together, even though they have been wholly unsuccessful at doing this separately for quite some time now. They said his state of mind at the time of the murder was obvious as he walked into a terrible and gruesome situation and just, quote, jumped right in there, which I have to agree. Hohen would inevitably be, Hohen would inevitably be convicted and sentenced to life in prison by an unapologetic judge, Tom Olson, but that decision would later be overturned by the Supreme Court later that year on an appeal, if you can believe it. They had ruled that Olson had mistakenly deemed Hohen a dangerous special offender due to his previous crimes, which would have made him eligible for a life sentence, but that he should have actually only been handed a maximum sentence of 21 years. And I have to say that if you murder a pregnant woman and steal her baby from her, you're a dangerous special offender, no matter what your prior convictions were. Olson told Hohen he wanted to sentence him as long as he could by law and noted bleakly that Savannah's child would still be in high school when he would one day be eligible for parole. But let's hope he doesn't make it there, everybody. Savannah's murder prompted the bill known as Savannah's Act, which was initially introduced in Congress in October 2017 by former Senator Heidi Heitkamp, but later introduced in January 2019 by Senator Lisa Murkowski. The purpose of Savannah's Act is to increase cooperation and coordination between federal, state, tribal, and local law enforcement agencies, as this has been one of the major barriers to developing an accurate database. This bill would also implement training for tribal agencies from the Attorney General, as well as improve tribal access to databases, including the National Missing and Unidentified Person Systems. In addition, data collection will be increased so that statistics more accurately represent missing and murdered Indigenous women. This bill was read twice in Congress and referred to the Committee on Indian Affairs, where it currently sits. And that is where we end our this episode today. Two of the most terrible murders I've ever heard of. It's terrible. This is obviously not a fun episode, not a funny episode, but it's important. And I'm glad that you have joined me here so that I could share this with you. While this is not a standard two hour long, let's get dark. It is a little shorter episode, but I, I think that this is going to be probably the best way for us to be able to bring you more regular episodes. So we'll have our standard big old longings, and then in between, we're going to bring you some shorter, shorter episodes that maybe just don't have as much information, but are still incredibly important for this information to be spread far and wide, because somebody out there knows who killed Rosinda Strong. 
somebody out there does. And hopefully, like I always say, somebody out there is going to talk. So anyway, thank you guys so much for joining me. I appreciate all of your support. So anyway, we will see you soon. We'll see you next week. Looking good. Uh, I think we're going to be bringing you a story of a cult that you may not have heard of before. So join us back here. Same random time, same random place. And we'll see you next week on Let's Get Dark. I love you. Farewell.